Uh, will you pray with me? Uh, Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to gather on the um, on this Sunday with some beautiful sunshine outside. Lord, we uh, uh, we realize that we come in this morning with uh, with a lot of different things. Some of them some of them uh, wonderful. Some of the, some some of us are coming in this morning feeling great. And Lord, may we we pray that you meet us in our joy and enhance it and. And help us to realize the, the goodness that, uh, that you've given each of us in our lives. Other, others of us come in shaky or, or, or hurting or frustrated or anxious or whatever that may be. Uh, Lord, we pray that you meet us in those spaces too. Uh, that, uh, that you give us the peace that transcends understanding. Uh, that we, we realize that no matter what we've brought into the building, that you love us deeply and care for us in, the, in that way. God, we pray that as we approach your word here uh, in a few minutes, Lord, that you illuminate it for us, that we can see uh, what you have to say to each of us. Uh, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Oh, it's, uh, today, today is one of those Sundays where it, uh, every once in a while where it feels like something's working against you sometimes, right? So we, whether it was getting, getting our, uh, our, everything in order for worship this morning, there's a few bumps there, obviously without a projector, uh, and the week that we have two things for you to scan isn't fun, right? Um, but it's, it's just kind of the nature of how it was this morning. I was feeling the same way, and so uh, either this is going to be a giant bomb and you're all going to hate me, or the Holy Spirit's going to do something awesome. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see which way it goes. Let me know at the end. Um, uh, but some mornings feel like that, so feel scattered, and yet, I, uh, we, yet we gather here because we realize, uh, just like Lisa said, that as we're walking through life, um, we, we, the, the discipleship journey is one in which we have ups and downs, but we come together in this space uh, to encourage one another, to, to support one another, um, to, to, to help, us help each other understand who God is a little bit better, uh, and then how that inspires us to care for each other a little bit better as well. So hopefully we'll see, experience that this morning. So we, uh, we have been working through the book of Genesis in 2023. Um, this is the second year in a row we've decided to go into these long-form spaces. Where we, Last year we tackled the book of Matthew. Uh, this year we're tackling the book of Genesis. Um, and the way we've done it, if you've been around, is we've broken down these large books that we take in a year into little mini-series to kind of help us have more bite-sized uh, chunks of them. And uh, for 2023, though, as Lisa had just mentioned, we've been focused on increasing discipleship and, and trying to, to practice uh, different things to, to, to follow Jesus and help others do the same. And so uh, this year, we decided at the end of each mini-series to, to have a, a week we just call in practice. So if you remember, at the end of our last one, we talked about Sabbath and rhythms and how those things work. Um, today, we're, we're at the end of, our, of, of this mini-series that we've been in for the last five weeks called My Brother's Keeper, uh, in which we've been asking our qu the question, like, what is my responsibility uh, in my faith life for, for myself, towards other people, towards God, towards those kinds of things? And we've, we've walked through the story of Cain and Abel in the midst of that. We've walked through the story of, uh, of Noah in the midst of that. Uh, of Noah's failure after that, last week the Tower of Babel, uh, and now, um, we're, now we're, we're about ready to move into the next mini-series, which is on Abraham. Um, but before we do, we wanted to take some time to kind of wrap up this series in practice. And so, um, hopefully through this series, you've learned a lot about who God is in the midst of this. We've talked to, we've, we've been, we've been um, going back to Genesis uh, and repeating a few different things over and over again. Um, at the beginning of the year, when we asked, why would we study Genesis after we studied Matthew? Wouldn't something like Acts make more sense? We said, well, when Jesus talks about himself, he drives back to the beginning and, and starts in Genesis himself. And so we, may, we say the phrase, where we start the story matters. 
All right? how, we, how, we, how we start understanding who God is and where we start the story matters. We also saw that uh, when we were, we were looking at the creation stories, there's two, one in Genesis 1 and one in Genesis 2, uh, we talked about how we view God matters because those two, those two stories communicate who God is uh, a little bit differently, not in contrast with each other, but to help us gain a bigger understanding that God is both big, bigger than we can imagine, to create all things, the entirety of the universe, and incredibly intimate when he will actually mold us uh, himself and inform us. The ideas of creating being massive and big, but also forming like clay. So we talked about how, what, how, how we view God matters, how we respond to sin matters, how we take care of each other matters. We've been talking about all of those kinds of things. And so the hope is today then, as we've been looking at our responsibility towards each other in the stories of Cain, that, this, that the story we'll look at this morning, which is jump to the New Testament, will kind of help bring it all full circle back to, to where we began. Um, so if you have a Bible, you're going to have to actually either do an app or a physical Bible this morning because I can't put the words on the screen. I did build a slide, but if you want to look at it, you'll have to look in the back, so that'll be awkward. Otherwise, you'll have to follow along on paper. We're in Luke 10 today. Luke 10. Uh, in a story that is probably one of the more famous ones in the New Testament, it's, it's, whether you have been in church around a long time or are fairly new, my guess is at least you have some understanding or some have heard at least a little bit of this particular story. My hope is today we'll be able to look at it with some new eyes. Uh, but we're in Luke 10. I'm going to read the whole thing and then we'll go back and break it down a little bit slower. Luke 10, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hand of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the, other si or down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to this place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where this man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man to his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to a man who fell into the hands of, the robber, of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So like I mentioned, it's a story that you may have heard before. It's a story of the Good Samaritan. It's the reason I think that so many people have heard about it is we even write it into our legal codes, right? We have Good Samaritan laws uh, uh, in, in general society. Uh, it's a story that we, we've heard a number of different times, but I wonder if sometimes in that familiarity we've missed some of the beauty and some of what Jesus is trying to communicate uh, in, in, in this particular story. So my hope is this morning that we can break it down a little bit and then end it with, what do we do with that? And so... Um, Let's see, let's see if there's some new things that the story can teach us. As we, be, as we begin in this story, 
Um, it starts by identifying who's asking the question. So it says there was a day that Jesus is hanging out, and it says an expert in the law who comes up to ask Jesus a question. Now, for us to really understand this story, the first thing that we have to do is understand what it is an expert of the law. What are, what are we talking about here? What kind of person are we talking about? This is a person who's dedicated their entire lives to studying, in particular, the first five books of the Bible. So when the, when the Bible talks about the law, uh, it's often referring to the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? Inside of those five books, if you've ever read them, Genesis, we've gone, we're going through right now, and is an easier one to read. It's filled with a lot of stories. Uh, the beginning of Exodus is the same way. It's got stories, but then by the time you get to the end of Exodus, people start to get into a little bit of trouble uh, because you realize there's these long sections of prescribed law, how the nation of Israel is supposed to function, um, sections on how you're supposed to build the tabernacle, uh, all of the different measurements and where things have to go there, sections on how, do we, how to serve God inside of the temple, uh, sections on how to care for each other and what that looks like. Uh, and so there's a lot to study there. The other thing that we realize is that Israel exists as something called a theocracy, right? Which, is a, which means that your political system and your religious system are the same, right? That, they, that inside of the nation of Israel, the, the law of the Bible is the law of the land. And so you have people who spend their entire lives studying that law, debating over it. Uh, it's a, it, it, think about lawyers, right? It's like lawyers, right? Hey, here's what the language says, here's how I interpret it, and here's the argument I'm making to say I'm right and you're wrong, Right? That's what we do in law school. That's the kind of person we have here. Uh, somebody who's, who's probably very intelligent, um, somebody who, who's, who, who comes in, in specifically to test Jesus in the way that he's probably used to with his colleagues. Uh, and we do realize that what he's doing here is more than just asking his simple first question, which we'll get to in a minute. So we have a teacher of the law. We have someone who spent their entire lives studying the first five books of the Bible. Would be an, and we, we're also told that he's an expert, which means he, he, he's very capable at what he does. So, the, so this expert of the law asks a question. He says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, one of the ways that we can kind of wrap our minds around what kind of question he's asking, I think it translates today in a, in a, in the, with a similar question. Uh, we usually ask it, what do I have to do to get to heaven? Right? What are the steps, what are the lines, what are the boundaries uh, of, of me being in, uh, into the salvation space? Right? Now, there's nothing wrong with asking that question in particular, but what we'll see is that that wasn't as simple as straightforward as what it seems at first. There's more running behind that question. So he first just asks, what, what must they do to inherit eternal life? What must they do to get into heaven, essentially, in the way that he would understand it? Jesus addresses that question with another question. He asks the expert to express his expertise. So what must they do to inherit eternal life? The expert of the law asks. Jesus responds by saying, well, what does the law say? Right? You're, you, you've spent your whole life studying the law. What does the law say? And so the guy gives his answer. He says, well, the law says, similar to what Jesus has already said in other places in the Bible, where he says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, the golden rule, Right? In other words, broad inclusion. Right? Love God first and then love your neighbor as yourself. But then we get to the heart of what the, what the teacher in the law, or the expert in the law is actually looking for. He goes, sure, we can all agree on that, fine. But who is my neighbor? And that is where the, he was set up and that's where the trick comes in. 
Because there was a debate going on at the time. Leviticus says to love, your, love God and love your neighbor, but it never defines what neighbor is or who your neighbor is. And so at this particular time, there was a debate going on between two different religious groups in the uh, ancient world at the time of Jesus. The Sadducees, if you were to ask them, who is my neighbor, uh, they would argue only the Jews. Other, your fellow brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith and the Jewish ethnicity, that's your neighbor. So when it, the Bible says, love your neighbor, it's talking about, it, it's, they would argue it's speaking to the nation of Israel, meaning that your neighbor is just the nation of Israel. That's who you should love. So if you ask the Sadducees, so are we supposed to love Rome? They say, absolutely not. They're not Jewish. That's not who you love. Okay, well, am I supposed to love uh, anybody other than the Jewish people? They'd say, no. Right? Unless somebody converts to Judaism, they don't count as your neighbor. On the other hand, you had the Pharisees, who were more of the, the local pastors at the time. They argued that everyone is your neighbor. Didn't matter if you were Roman or Greek, didn't matter if you were Persian or, or Jewish, that everyone is your neighbor. And so the Pharisees would, would, would there was actually a very heated debate on what that school looked like, and it, which had both social implications and geopolitical ones, right? Where the Sadducees didn't include the, the Romans, the Pharisees did. So I want to pause there for one second, because I think it can be easy to miss what the expert's goal is here. So he's asking the question to actually force Jesus to weigh into this debate that was already happening at the time. Who is my neighbor? We have two different views. But his goal here is he's, he's trying to make boxes. He's trying to make categories, and he's actually trying to figure out which one of those categories or boxes Jesus would fit in. Right? Who's in and who's out? Who goes to heaven and who doesn't? Who do you side with, the Sadducees or the Pharisees? Where are the lines? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's in? Who's out? Who do we, get to, who do we treat well and who do we not have to worry about? Uh, <clears throat> what the expert in the law is trying to do is to create these nice little boxes so, that we, can, so we can know these people are good, these people aren't. End of story. So let's hold on to that for a second. Because how does Jesus answer the expert of the law asks him, hey, who is my neighbor? Uh, and Jesus responds, you'd think that he would, you know, he could either have answered along either one of the two lines that they were already arguing. That would be an answer. He could have given a, a more specific explanation of who exactly was your neighbor or said everyone. That would have worked too. But he doesn't do either of those things, right? They say, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you a story about a guy who got mugged. Which is an interesting response, isn't it? i got to imagine the teacher of the law here, is, especially because he had just set Jesus up, has got to be thinking, what is happening here? Why would you tell this story? So there's this guy who, who got mugged, and first a priest walked by uh, and decides to pass on the other side of the road. Now, for most of you, probably have not walked the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. I, I haven't either, but I got to see it. That was kind of cool. I'd show a picture of it, but again, projector doesn't work. Sorry about that. Uh, but the road that walks from Jerusalem to Jericho is actually a very narrow road through the mountains. And so in this particular space where, where this person got mugged, the image that you're supposed to have in your head is somebody laying on the road, and the road is not like this out here. The road is like this here, right, without a lot of rooms to go. So when we're talking about passing by on the other side, what we're talking about is somebody doing one of these, right? Not somebody like crossing to the other sidewalk on the other side of the street. There has to be a really intentional kind of skirting by in this particular space. 
Now, if you were a good Jewish person, in particular an expert in the law and the, way, the kind of people we're talking about, you'd understand why the priests would have done that. For us, we seem like it seems completely insensitive. Right? Why would somebody, a priest, especially someone who's supposed to be representing God here, why would they do that? But in the Jewish mindset, you totally understood why. Because a priest needed to maintain their cleanliness. And I don't just mean like taking a shower every now and then. I mean your ceremonial cleanliness. One of the biggest deals for a priest, one of the easiest ways to become unclean in a world in which things die a lot is to touch dead things. You're not supposed to do that, especially a dead human body. And so if you're a good Jewish person, you go, yeah, of course the priest couldn't touch this person. He would become immediately ceremonially unclean. He wouldn't be able to do this job. Now, it is interesting because the direction this priest is traveling is intentional by Jesus too. He's coming from Jerusalem going to Jericho, meaning that, yes, he needs to stay ceremonially clean, but where does the priest do his work? In Jerusalem, not in Jericho, right? So this priest is staying ceremonially clean, but he's heading the wrong way. So he's not going to the temple. He's working away from it. But at least you could get that going on inside your head. The priest passed by. And next, we have a Levite, which is a teacher of teachers, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, there, you had priests and you have Levites. The Levites are just people who are from the tribe of Levi. But if you go back to the story on Mount Sinai, uh, they are also given a special designation by God to be the people whose livelihoods, the entirety of their livelihoods, the entire tribe, is to study the law and teach other people about it. So a priest would have functions inside of the actual temple itself, and sometimes those priests could be Levites. Other times they weren't. Most of the time they actually were. But there were other Levites whose job was just to study the law and teach other people. They also had cleanliness laws as well, but they were looser. Uh, but they, they, both of these groups of people are all about following the letter of the law. We understand what the law says, and we need to keep it in this specific way. And so both of them would have justified moving past this man who is dying on the side of the road, um, uh, based on cleanliness principles there. But finally, we have this third person. Now, inside of a debate in the normal ancient world, you would expect this next person then to be a Pharisee because we have, we have di these different people being represented in this space. And so he goes, okay, now we're gonna, that was who, that's who you would expect to come next in the way that they would tell stories here. But Jesus throws a huge curveball. If you're not familiar with the Samaritans, the Samaritans and the Jews had a, uh, had a bitter rival. There, was, there's very, there were very few things that you could say all Jewish people love this or hate that, except for the Samaritans. Almost every single Jewish person had a, had a, had a severe hatred or dislike for Samaritan people. They felt justified in that because of, of how the Samaritans came to exist. So if you read through the Old Testament, you, at some point in Israel's history, they go from one nation to separate into two. So you, it's after the reign of Solomon. The, the kingdom splits in two. You have the northern kingdom and you have a southern kingdom. Southern kingdom's Judah. The northern kingdom is called Israel. Right? Maybe, you, maybe you're familiar with that, maybe not. Well, as time goes on, both of them are conquered. The, the um, northern kingdom, though, is conquered first. They're conquered by Asher Benipal, who is the leader of a nation of Assyria. Assyria was the world power at the time. They conquered the northern kingdom, but failed to conquer the southern kingdom. And throughout history, whenever you're finished conquering a particular land, your trouble is, how do I keep people from revolting? Um, that's in every single major empire across time. They all struggle with, how do we keep people, once our armies move on, from just revolting and trying to get, regain their independence? And so there was a number of different strategies on how to do that. 
In the book of Daniel, you see Babylon's strategy. It was that our culture is so overwhelming that if we just take your important people to Babylon, you'll be so impressed that you won't want to revolt. That was Babylon's strategy. But Assyria had a different strategy. After they finished conquering you, they, they figured, well, um, if we force you to marry Assyrians, then your kids will be half Assyrian and half whatever you were before, right? So in the case of Jewish people, you'd be half Jewish, half Assyrian. They figured if your kids have a, have a blood tie to the nation, that you're much, more, you're much less likely to actually revolt against them. That's where the Samaritans come from. So the Samaritan people are, are, people, are, are, the, are the children of the, nor, the northern kingdom Jews who had to intermarry with Assyrians. So they're part Assyrian, part Jewish. And so from the, from the southern kingdom's perspective, they are tainted people of God. Tracking? The idea is that, that they, it's the, for the southern kingdom in particular, for Judah, for the place for where, the, where the temple is and things like that, it's really easy to say as the non-conquered people, we would have never sacrificed our status as the chosen ones um, to save lives in the way that the Samaritans did. That's where that root of that hatred comes from. Now, which is really easy to say when you don't actually have to make that choice, right? Uh, and yet, that's the way it went. So we have the Samaritan. This person who is deeply hated by Jewish people who then acts in a way that's definitely commendable. I just want to hold on to that thought here for a minute and kind of reset what we've got here. We've got an expert of the law, someone who studied the Old Testament, wanting to know how to inherit eternal life. How do I get into heaven? He's thinking in and out. Some go to heaven, some go to hell. Who's in, who's not? And how do I make sure I'm one of the people who's, on, who's in? He's coming to test Jesus to figure out which one of those categories he wants to fall into. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. Even in his first response, we already start to see a paradigm shift. Him encouraging this expert of the law to think about these things differently. He says, well, what does the law say? He says, love God and love your neighbor. Now, what this expert of the law is thinking about is how do I inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven, this place that's in the distant future, Right? This is the way a lot of us have thought about it in the past, too. How do I get in? How do I not? How do I make sure that when I die, I go to heaven? Do you know where you're going to go to die tomorrow if you were to die, right? That's the, we, that kind of thinking should be familiar to us. But do you notice how Jesus answers the question? He shifts it from the future back into the present, doesn't he? So how do I inherit eternal life, the expert of the law asked. And he says, well, what does the law say? Well, love God and love your neighbor. Do this and you will live. Not, and you will get into heaven, not you will inherit eternal life. You'll begin to live now. He moves it from this future thing into this present space. Which is something that Jesus does often. Uh, when, if you were here with us through our journey through Matthew last year, uh, we saw that over and over and over and over again. Jesus t- taking this idea of the kingdom of heaven being far away and bringing it into the present we said it over again, over again last year that the first words of preaching in the book of Matthew are repent, turn, for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. It's near, it's close. And one of the themes, that, so uh, in, in Matthew it says the kingdom of heaven is all around you over and over again. Matthew likes the phrase kingdom of heaven. But if you were to read Luke, uh, the, the phrasing is repent for the kingdom of, of God is near. He likes the kingdom of God better. Same idea. But that, that it's close. And he's doing that again now. 
It's very clear when Jesus talks about eternity, he, which he, he talks about eternity going in both directions, right? Eternity actually begins now and proceeds out to the future. But the expert keeps going. Who's in and who's out? What box will you put yourself in, Jesus? Are you going to side with the Sadducees or are you going to side with the Pharisees? But what's so brilliant about Jesus' answer is he once again shifts the paradigm entirely. The expert is wondering about who fits into the category of neighbor. And Jesus' response, though, breaks that category entirely. Who do I, where the expert is coming from is who do I need to care about and who do I not? Because if you side with the Sadducees, I don't have to care about Rome at all. If you side with the Pharisees, well, then I guess I do. So who do I have to care about? Who do I not? Who's in? Who's out? When Jesus responds, though, how does he respond? He doesn't identify a person who is in that this person would need to care about, but he identifies a person who acts a certain way. So the category doesn't work anymore. He starts by giving two examples of people who would, be exa- who, who would be examples of people who have technically done the right thing. So if this whole thing was about the letter of the law, figuring out who's in, who's not, these debates about who's right and who's not, about the, which boxes that we fall into, then the priest and the Levite are doing the technical right thing. They're, they're keeping themselves clean, ceremonially clean, by not engaging with this nearly dead body. They work in the church, they study the word, they're respected for their title and their position in society, and yet in the midst of this story, even though when they do the technically right thing to stay ceremonially clean, it's clear, and even the expert of the law gets it, they've missed the point, haven't they? Because when he's asked later who was the one who behaved like a neighbor, the expert of the law knows that the Pharisee and the, and the, and, and the, or that the priest and the Levite both did things that were technically ceremonially correct, And yet he also knows it's the third guy, which, by the way, it's interesting. If you ever wondered about the hatred that they have for each other, the expert in the law refuses to even say the word Samaritan. He said, the one that shows mercy, right? That's how deep that hatred is. He won't even speak it. So Jesus then follows that up with a Samaritan, who, like we've already said, were hated by the Jews, but second would not have been people who were following the law in the way that the expert of the law would have thought was right. There's a story uh, uh, in, in many of the Gospels, I don't know if it's in all four, but it's in more than one of them, in which Jesus meets a Samaritan woman in the middle of Samarita, Samaria. Maybe you've heard that story before. She meets her at a well. In that particular story, it kind of breaks down one of the areas that would have been a huge deal for an expert in the law. The woman asked Jesus, Hey, there's two different ways that we serve God. You guys in the south serve at the temple, but we think we should serve him on this mountain over here. Maybe you remember that part of the story. So right off the bat, Samaritans are not worshiping God in the temple, which for an expert of the law is a huge problem. They're worshiping on one of two mountains, which would have also been a huge problem. Uh, But that's not the only thing that they had differences of when it came to how to interpret the law or even the morality around it. So from a Jewish perspective, a Samaritan could not be someone who is technically following the letter of the law, merely, if, if, not, if not for the rest, but for merely the location at which they, they serve God, being a mountain rather than the temple in Jerusalem. So what do we have here? We have an expert who's, a, who's asking who's in and who's out. Who's my neighbor? Jesus responds by telling a story where someone acts like a neighbor, And as a result, they find the life the expert is asking about at the beginning. In other words, 
What Jesus is saying here, and this is something we have to wrestle with a bit, the categories of in and out are not nearly as important as loving God in a way that inspires love for other people. Which is something that may be good for us in the church to hear. We've talked about it a lot here at Harbor Life. We're living in a world that loves to divide. Which camp do you fall into? Are you Republican? Are you Democrat? Democrat? Are you Christian enough? And if you are, are you a liberal Christian or are you a conservative one? Who do you stand with? Which camp do you put yourself in? In this story, the person who does it right, based on the understanding of the rules and the law, isn't the person, or sorry, the person who does it right isn't the person who has the best understanding of what the letter of the law is. Based on that criteria, the Samaritan is not the hero of this story. And yet, when you read this story, as well as the very expert of the law himself, it's clear that he's supposed to be, right? The hero of the story is the one who realizes the law wasn't given to divide. It was always meant to drive us towards God first and then towards each other second. What Jesus is communicating in this story is that we, if we don't use, we talked about this at Common Ground as well if you were there, if we don't use love for God and love for neighbor as our prime directive, we'll miss it. We'll screw it up entirely. The hot take that Jesus is giving into this space, and it's, this, it's these kinds of takes that actually make the Pharisees and Sadducees so angry with him they want to kill him. But the hot take that Jesus is giving here is he's saying the rules don't matter as much as the heart behind them. To be clear, because this is where you all get mad at me if I don't be clear, unfortunately. I'm not saying that rules or instructions or guidance of the Old Testament or the New Testament uh, doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying. Those things matter a lot. We we are told by Scripture itself to wrestle with them, to study with them, to marinate on them, to to strive together each and every week to find what, what kind of life God is leading us into as long as we keep them in the right perspective. As long as we realize the heart behind why those rules were given, either to draw us into a deeper relationship with God or to each other matters more than the rule itself. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable, let me, just give, let me just shore up my argument a little bit more. I think that's how God functions throughout the entirety of the Bible. Over and over and over and over again, we see that the rules matter, that the destruction matters, that if we don't keep it, there are consequences for those things. However, when the heart behind it's right, the rule is secondary. For instance, David, King David, said to be a man after God's own heart. Actually, throughout his entire life, he's said to be a man after his God's own heart. And yet, there's a moment in which he commits adultery and murder. According to the letter of the law, David should have been stoned. No question about it. It's not even that subtle. And yet he wasn't. Why? Because he writes Psalm 54. Created me a clean heart, O God. I blew it entirely and I want to be restored. Okay? Or we can talk Samaritan woman at the well, right? Jesus doesn't condemn her there either. He says, let's do better. Or the woman, or again, the woman caught in adultery. They bring her out and say, hey, we caught her in adultery. She should be stoned, which is what the letter of the law says. And that's where Jesus says, if any of you were without sin, throw the first stone. No one does. 
He looks at her and says, no one condemned you, I don't either. Well, then he's violating the letter of the law, unless the heart behind it was more important. Or back to the Old Testament. There's, there are sections in which, in which, in the prophets, in which God says, you guys have done a great job of literally doing all of the sacrifices that I asked you to, and they're a stench in my nose. I hate them. Why? Because your heart's not in the right place for it. It was never about making sure you made the right sacrifices at the right time in the right way if you forgot why we did that in the first place. Those are just some examples, and we could keep going. The rules matter as long as they remain secondary to the heart behind them. Maybe I can say it this way. We try to discern together what the best way to live is in order to, in order to uh, gain a deeper love for God and for each other rather than us being good enough because we know what God says to do. For a lot of us sometimes, our Christian life is about us doing enough good things to be noticed by God. We think about it like the expert of the law. What do I need to do to get into heaven? I just need to do enough good things, and then, I, then I'm in. Or I just got to not do so many bad ones. It's important for us to live flourishing lives, and yet entry into that space, isn't, that's not even how the categories work. See, this is what we've been seeing throughout this whole series. God desires to be with his people, to have a relationship with him. From the very beginning of the Bible, we've seen humanity fail over and over and over again. We, the series was heavy because we were constantly looking at human failure, which we call sin, right? Missing the mark that we're aiming at. Over and over and over again, we see humans, humanity fall. We wanted to be the gods of our own lives in the garden, so we're kicked out. The very next passage is God saying, even though this shouldn't be necessary, here are some clothes. There's pursuit after us. In the story of Cain, it's easy to miss because we like to make Cain the, the total bad guy, but it's, e it's easy to miss here that God comes to Cain to warn him, hey, sin is crouching at your door. I know you can master it. Let's see if we can do better. That's God reaching out towards Cain. Now Cain fails. We saw it when we were looking at the story of Cain in the midst of that, though, then God says, hey, let's see if we can grow from this. Walk in your brother's shoes and see if you can learn uh, what, it would, what it's like to think about the world differently. Same is true with Noah, is this pursuit of, 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 of God towards him in that way. Over and over and over again, God is going to continually reach out towards humanity. Uh, he's, in, he's in constant pursuit in that way. In order for us to move into this flourishing space, the key of the beginning of the book of Genesis is that it, God desires relationship with us. And that success or failure in that case may do damage to that relationship, but it won't stop the pursuit. For each of our in-practice weeks, we've been giving you a tool to help you kind of wrap your mind around it and put this into practice. Um, if I had a screen, the shape this week would be a triangle. Luckily, it's a simple one, so you can conceptualize it, right? Just three sides and a triangle. Uh, three parts that are all present in, in our story this morning. What do we do with this idea then? If, if, if our Christian life isn't based on a series of rules to say you're good or you're not good, what is it instead? And the triangle helps us to capture that. 
Because it represents a, a discipleship journey and represents uh, the three different parts of that. And another, so the inside of the triangle, there are three words. This is actually a lot harder than I thought without the actual picture. I was going to keep pointing at it. <laughs> Sorry about that. But inside the three words, you have up, in, and out, right? So these kind of three postures we take in our discipleship space. The first is up. It represents our relationship with God, which is the foundation of everything else that we do. Our understanding, we said the way that we view God matters. It matters a whole lot. And so the first thing that we do when we're going to walk into a, our, our discipleship journey is consider what our, our relationship with God might look like. How we view God matters. Throughout this series, we've talked about that a number of different ways. When you think about God, do you view him as someone like Zeus? This angry, judgmental God that's ready to stand up there until you screw up and chuck a lightning bolt at you? I would argue that's how the expert in the law in our story today sees him. Who's in, who's out? If you do enough good stuff, then you'll be accepted by God you're in. If you don't, watch out for that lightning bolt. Understanding that where Jesus shifts this is he talks about it, that God is, that where Jesus shifts the conversation and where we've seen it in throughout the Old Testament as well is that, again, the letter of those rules doesn't matter in that way. That your value in God's eyes doesn't change if you do enough good stuff versus enough bad stuff. That's how Zeus functions. That's how this guy wants to interact with God. Are you in the in category or in the out? Jesus breaks that entirely and says it's about having a relationship in this space and walking. Maybe you do few things that are outside of the letter of the law, but if your heart is in the place where God's is, we're in a better spot. You see, understanding the message of the gospel is that you are loved. And I know that, is, that can become trite language inside of our Christian spaces because we say it so often. But you have, if you really let that settle in, that you are loved, that you matter, that you are seen, no matter what. If that can become the root or the core of your identity, everything changes. I think I might have shared this a couple weeks ago. One of the prayers that I've been praying often to myself, just, just to, to help me lock this in better, because I think it's something we all wrestle with, is that at the end of the times in which I fail the worst, like when I lose my temper or whatever it might be, just a prayer to God and just asking, even now. Right, if the message of the gospel is that you are loved no matter what, that what you do it doesn't change your value in God's eyes, the prayer of even now becomes powerful. I just did these things, which I know are outside of what you would desire for me. And consistently and continually, the message is, yeah, of course, even now. Inside of that space, what happens is God shifts from a Zeus authoritarian structure that just wants to judge you and condemn you and zap you to a father who, of course, doesn't like it when we do things that hurt ourselves, right? If you have kids or nephews or nieces or any ch children in your life, when they do something that's wrong, their value in your eyes doesn't change, and yet you still are disappointed or, or frustrated or whatever other emotion might come out of it. How we view God matters. The up of our relationship matters so much. It's the difference between needing to prove that you're good enough, that God will accept you, and knowing you're good enough so out of that we can bring others into that same value. Which then drives us into the second one. 
When we begin to realize that our value in God's eyes doesn't change, no matter how many good things we do or don't do, we then realize what God has asked us to do that must be for our own good. We aren't, we aren't worried about figuring out who's in or who's out, because that's a category one that's not reserved for us to determine anyway. But two, isn't helpful when we already understand that our value is secured in Jesus. Instead, it puts us into a place to work together to discern what flourishing looks like, which is something we talk about here at Harbor Life all the time. We talked about it this morning again. What God has asked us to do matters a lot because it's in our best interest. The reason I talk to my girls about not lying is not, not because if they do, their value will be less to me, but because I know that if they develop a habit of lying regularly, it's not going to help them flourish in, as they become adults, Right? Why we talk about healthy sexuality or why we talk about healthy uh, uh, use of our, our resources is that we know that if we don't do those things well, they begin to own us, right? We've all experienced that in one way or another. That the things that when, it, when the Bible is talking about the wages of sin being death, without Jesus, sure, that might mean hell, but it's definitely like what Jesus does in this story is pulled into uh, the present that we're in now. If we're going to chase down those things that we know are going to keep us from flourishing, what they begin to do is own us and make us miserable. Maybe you've experienced that in your own life or you know somebody who's experiencing it now. When we understand our value is secured in God, what that does then is motivate us to work together to see all, to, because we value each other in that same way to live the kind of life that God created us to live. A kind that flourishes is the, not, is the best life, but not the easiest. And in those cases, then, we, we, we get less concerned about what the, what the letter of the law says, and we can take the obvious wins, like the Samaritan. Sure, there were parts of the Samaritan's life that I'm sure were not in line with exactly the way God wanted to do things from the Old Testament. And yet, he was able to capture the heart behind it better than the ones who had spent their whole lives studying it. Finally, in those spaces, if we were actually get to be able to move as a congregation, as a church, as a, as a body of Christ, first by locking in our value with God as being secured because he loves us regardless of how good or bad we've been that particular day, week, or month. Recognizing that that then value then spurs us into uh, caring for each other as a community here in this space that's in, so up and in. We care for each other to wrestle through with what flourishing looks like because it's not always easy. Sometimes we want Jesus to give us a clear answer, who's my neighbor? And he tells us a story about a guy who got, got mugged and we got to wrestle with that a little bit. Out of that space then, the hope is that we all encourage each other and spur one another on to a more flourishing kind of life. A life in which we get 300 cans of chicken to help kids who are hungry. That's awesome, right? That's a thing that we ought to do or buy shirts that have them and talk smack talk in our leadership team about it, right? That's, that's good stuff. That's, things that, that's compelling to people. That's what, that's what people, people want to be a part of something that matters more than just their own day-to-day -day stuff. When we realize our value is secure so we can then care for each other in this space, what we didn't realize very quickly, though, is that this kind of life that we begin to, explore, to experience, this flourishing kind of life that God desires for us, isn't meant to be contained in one spot. We, re we realize very quickly that the thing that we have, one, doesn't cost us anything because it costs someone else everything. And so then we should share that with other people. And so we look out. 
which is the third part of the triangle. We know that our value in God is secure. We know that our brothers and sisters in Christ is as well. And we know that God desires for everyone else to be in that same space. And so we start going out to one, just declare the message that everyone that exists that's in the image of God is desired to, that God desires to see themselves the way he does, as beloved children of his. And then two, invite them into the flourishing life that hopefully we're finding. Throughout the scriptures, it's easy for us to get caught up in, in like the te- like the, it's easy for us to get caught up in, in, de- in some of the details, like the expert of the law. Who's in, who's out? What's right, what's wrong? Those are discussions that ought to be had. We, that's actually when we talk about common ground, which is something that will come back in May, about where, we're gonna, where we discuss hard topics in which we don't all see them the same way. We recognize that those questions are important. We, we as a church believe those questions are really important. As long as... We understand their position in our faith lives. That our relationship with God and with each other and how we care for those around should be primary. Doesn't, whether, whether, we're, whether our doctrine is perfect or not matters less than whether we're loving each other well, whether we're loving God well. So often... We've spent so much of our energy figuring out who gets to be part of us and who doesn't. Next time you read through the Old Testament, look at how much time that Jesus Jesus spends with the people that have been declared not in. It's almost exclusively all of his time. He gets in arguments with the religious leaders and then they leave. But over and over and over again, he goes to the houses of tax collectors or sinners. He talks with prostitutes or people caught in adultery. He talks with with people that the rest of the world says, you are not keeping the rules the way you're supposed to. And Jesus says, those are the ones I want to be with. Over and over and over again, the religious establishment goes, what are you doing with those people? And he goes, that's why I'm here. So as we close up this part of our series, if there's anything else that we can take from it, I hope it's this. Throughout, even, throughout the first 11 chapters of the Bible, we see God's constant pursuit of a relationship with people. That he desires them to say that even in the midst of your failure, I will pursue you endlessly because you matter to me. And so because you matter to me, I want to encourage you to live the kind of life I created you to live because we see what happens when we don't, whether it's the story of Cain or Noah or Babel. Because when we begin to live the kind of life we created you to live, you're going to experience a flourishing in life that you've experienced nowhere else. And so then Israel, eventually the church, so become a light to the rest of the world. Draw them in and invite them into this other way of living. One in which your value is secured in God, in which we're encouraged into the flourishing life, and is gratuitously gracious to anyone who wants to be part of that in. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just recognize that in so many ways we've, we missed the point. That your desire is that each and every single day that we would take one step towards being closer to understanding who you are and how much you care for us. And then having that motivate us to do a little better today than we did yesterday. 
God, we all have things in our lives that are keeping us from flourishing in the way that you desire for us. We get that. And so our prayer this morning, my prayer for everybody here this morning, is a prayer we've prayed regularly the last couple weeks, is that you help us to see ourselves through your eyes. Give us your eyes to see ourselves first. The doubt, the guilt, the shame that we may have brought into this space May it be a thing that we can, may, may that wash away. May we be able to hear your voice saying, sure, we messed up yesterday, but today is a new day, a day in which we can take a step towards something a little bit better. Maybe we, may we be the kinds of people that while we're trying to figure out what flourishing looks like, are gratuitously, uh, are gratuitously loving everybody in our space. Amen.